0: Before we look at the word together, why don't we pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would prepare our hearts uh, to receive your word, Lord. Uh, Please grant us humility as we come and hear uh, what you have to say to us. Um, Lord, I pray that uh, as one who is preaching your word, Lord, that I would not go beyond what, what is written, Uh, Lord, that you would place a guard over my mouth so that uh, what I say would honor and glorify you and that it would uh, be what your people need to hear. Um, Grant them discernment, Lord, as I preach this message. Um, Help them, Father, uh, to be good Bereans, to search the scriptures, to see whether these things are so, whether it's me preaching it or anybody else, Lord. Um, But we do ask that your spirit would take your word and that it would... That your spirit would penetrate our hearts, that your word would be the scalpel that penetrates deep to cut out sin that ought not to be there, as well as to heal uh, wounds that need to be healed, Lord. Uh, We thank you that your word is able to do both of those things, and we pray that that might be what happens even this morning. So Lord, please do help us in our weakness to bear up under what your word has to say, <clears throat> help us to endure sound doctrine. Lord, help us to take these things to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and Lord willing, we will be finishing that chapter. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. So as you turn there, I'll read that passage for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Paul writes All things are lawful for me. But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. As Christians, we can tend to overemphasize certain things and de-emphasize other things. That's why Verse-by-verse expository preaching is so helpful because it forces us to work through passages that we would otherwise leave untouched, and it often brings a balance to our thinking that we would not receive otherwise. This passage this morning is one of those passages. This passage will cause us to think in a more balanced way about one topic in particular that we tend to de-emphasize, and that is the doctrine of Scripture concerning our physical bodies. As Christians we tend to emphasize our immaterial souls over and above our material bodies. And this can lead to some problems when we do that too much and for too long. First, it can lead us to think that what we do with our bodies does not really matter all that much. If our understanding of heaven is me flying through the air on clouds as a soul free from the chains of my body, I might find myself asking the question, does God really mind if I trash my body with drugs or alcohol or if I use my body to pursue sexual pleasure with whomever I like? Does it really matter? That's a problem because in that case, we might as well throw out half of what our Bibles are telling us. A second problem is this. When we ignore what the Bible says concerning our bodies, we will find ourselves inevitably listening more and more to what our surrounding culture is teaching us about our bodies. Our culture is telling us that our bodies are nothing more than products of time and chance shaped by an evolutionary process that has taken place over billions of years. We are told that your body is nothing but stardust and hormones. Therefore, there's no eternal significance attached to your body. If you're pregnant, you can terminate that child within you because after all, it's just a clump of cells. If you were born a man, but you feel like a woman, you can have a surgery done to try to conform your physical body to match your feelings. If you're a biological woman, who has a sexual desire for someone who does not happen to be a biological man that you are married to, it is okay, the culture says, for you to pursue pleasure with that person, whoever he or she is. After all, does it really matter what one clump of stardust does with another clump of stardust? We need to have a biblical understanding of our bodies. Our God created us as a body and a soul. And we will live forever as a body and a soul with our incarnate God, Jesus Christ, who took upon himself a human body and a human soul. And he did that in order to redeem a lost humanity and to redeem us body and soul. The Corinthian believers seem to have gotten confused about that reality And Christians today seem to still be confused about that reality. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about this. In our passage, we're going to see three critical truths about our physical bodies that help us to glorify God with our bodies. The first truth that we find about our bodies that will help us to glorify God better with our bodies is this, your body is is eternally significant. Your body is eternally significant. Look at verse 12. Paul writes there, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul had a lot to say about a Christian's freedom and how they use their bodies. For example, Romans Chapter 14 and verse 14, speaking about the believer's freedom to eat any kind of food, a freedom not enjoyed under the Mosaic Covenant, Paul said this, I know and convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And in that same chapter, in verse 20, Paul said, All things indeed are clean. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul wrote, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. There in Galatians 5:1 Paul was speaking of how the believer is free from having to earn a right standing with God by obeying the law of God. And in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 Paul said that believers are free from having to observe certain dietary restrictions, free from having to observe certain religious ceremonies and Sabbath days, because those things merely pointed to Christ. They were not Christ himself. So we as believers are free from those things. But it seems that the Corinthians were in danger of or they had already begun misapplying that principle of our Christian freedom. So Paul, in verse 12, is wanting to be very clear with these believers. Being free in Christ does not mean being free to do whatever you please with your body. Paul gives us what those limitations are. He says, All things are lawful for me, but... Not all things are profitable. I may be free before God to eat a certain food or to drink a certain drink, but if that activity that I participate in will harm a brother or a sister in Christ, I am no longer free to eat that food or drink that drink. Listen to what Paul says about that in Romans 14, verse 15. He says, For if because of food... Your brother is hurt. You are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So we see that our Christian freedom is constrained. We're not allowed to exercise freedom to the detriment of others in the body of Christ. Back to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, in the second half of that verse, Paul says, All things are lawful for me but I will not be mastered by anything. Jesus alone is the ultimate master of the believer. So if there is something that is not sinful in and of itself, but my indulging in this thing gets to the point to where that thing is now mastering me instead of Christ mastering me, my Christian freedom ends there. I need to stop indulging in that because Christ alone can be my master. Our freedom in Christ is about being free to use your body to serve Jesus Christ and one another. It's not about being free to use your body to serve yourself. Going on in verse 13, Paul says, Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Apparently, the Corinthian believers had fallen into the thinking that Christian freedom meant not only eating whatever you like, but also having sexual relations with whoever you like. They may have been reasoning this way. My stomach was created to digest food. Food is designed by God to be digested for my stomach, I am not under law, I am under grace, therefore I am free to eat whatever I like. And taking that reasoning, they apply it to the realm of sexual relations. My body was designed by God to enjoy sexual relations with someone else. Sexual relations is designed by God to be enjoyed by the body. I am under grace, I am not under law, therefore I can have all manner of sexual relations. That appeared to be how they were reasoning. But Paul is showing them in verse 13 that such reasoning is severely flawed. Yes, the stomach's sole purpose is to digest food. And food's sole purpose is to be digested by the stomach. But that relationship between the stomach and food, that relationship does not carry over to the body and sexual immorality. It's not the same it's not analogous to one another. Because the body's sole purpose, unlike the stomach, the stomach's sole purpose is to digest food, the body's sole purpose is not to have sexual relations. The sole purpose of sexual relations is not merely to satisfy the body. So Paul says the body is not for sexual immorality. The word immorality is the Greek word pornea, It's a word that has a broad meaning. It encompasses any kind of sexual relationship that God deems to be sinful, whether it's fornication or adultery or homosexuality or bestiality or what have you. Paul says here in verse 13 that the body was not created by God for sexual immorality. As a Christian, your body is not like your stomach. Your body is not simply another organ to be satisfied when it has an urge for something. And sexual relations are not like food. They're not something that you can enjoy without having it do something to you spiritually. To treat your body and to treat sex in that way is to demean both of them and it's to reduce them to nothing more than something like the stomach digesting food your stomach is a bag of acid that digests food I think my brother-in-law said that once being a nurse but your whole body is more than a bunch of organs cobbled together your body is more than the sum of its parts your body is more than just a bag of hormones chasing after whatever urge may flash across your brain And sex is more than a bodily function or recreation. Paul tells us in verse 13 what the body is for. It's for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. The ultimate purpose of your body and my body is to serve Jesus Christ. The purpose of our bodies is to bring God glory. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he took on a human body. He took on a human soul of his own in order to redeem not only our souls but also our bodies. Our bodies are for him and he is for our bodies. Now to prove this significance of your body as a believer, to show that your body is more than just an organ that performs a sexual function, Paul says what he says in verse 14. He says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. What sort of things need to be raised from the dead? Not souls, bodies. Bodies need to be raised from the dead. When we die, our soul goes to be with the Lord. What remains to be raised is our bodies. Compare what Paul says in verse 14 to what he says in verse 13 about the stomach and food. What will God do with the stomach and food in verse 13? God will do away with both of them, but not so with the body. When a man dies and we have a funeral, we gather to mourn not over the loss of his stomach. I've never heard that in a eulogy. Oh, we wish his stomach was still here. No, we mourn the loss of his body We mourn having his embodied soul interact with our embodied souls. That's what we mourn. And when we have the man's funeral, we don't throw his body into the dumpster like it's a husk off of an ear of corn, something to be discarded. No, we carefully take that body and we place it in the ground, looking forward to the day when God will raise that body from the dead. Your bodies are eternally significant. When that goes in the ground, that's not the end of the body. When God raised the Lord Jesus bodily from the dead, He did so not with the purpose of redeeming our stomachs, He did so with the purpose of redeeming our whole bodies. Because we are going to spend eternity as body and soul with immortal bodies and immortal souls serving the Lord Jesus Christ who forever is a human body and soul as the God-man. Your bodies have eternal significance. It matters very much how we use them. God gave us our bodies not for the soul purpose of pursuing whatever sexual urges we may have, but for the ultimate purpose of serving Jesus Christ. To use our bodies to commit sexual immorality is not freedom. It is to treat your body as nothing more than a reproductive organ. It is slavery, and it's a slavery from which Jesus died to save us, to set us free. So that's the first truth that we need to grasp if we are to glorify God with our bodies. The second truth we see in verses 15 to 17, and it's this your body is a member of Christ. Your body is a member of Christ. The Corinthians, they seem to have forgotten or ignored the eternal significance of their bodies because Paul asks them that question he's been asking all right along in verse 15, do you not know? He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Paul often speaks of the church as being the body of Christ. And in keeping with that metaphor, Paul often speaks of individual believers as being members of that body. The word member, it means body part. To be be a believer is to be a member. It is to be a body part of Jesus Christ. The moment that you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ the Holy Spirit made you a body part, a member of the body of Jesus Christ. Our union with Jesus through faith is such that we can be spoken of as being a body part of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, often when we speak of, you know, being a part of the body of Christ, being a member of his body, being a body part, of his body. Usually we are thinking in a spiritual sense, but Paul is showing us here that it also takes on a physical sense, because where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And just to check if you're awake, where are we right now? On earth, yes, on earth. We as believers who possess bodies, we are the physical manifestation of of Christ's presence here on earth. We are members, body parts of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, back to verse 15. Paul asks, do you realize that when you take your body and you join your body to the body of a prostitute, do you realize that you are ripping away a body part of Jesus Christ and you are uniting it to be a part of the body of a citizen of the kingdom of Satan. Paul is asking, do you realize that? He says at the end of verse 15, shall I then take away the members, the body parts of Christ, and make them members, body parts of a prostitute? May it never be, Paul exclaims. Should a believer even contemplate taking his body and joining it to someone else in a sexually immoral relationship, that is a nightmarish thought to Paul. Is that a nightmarish thought to you and me? Or is that kind of a thought we kick around in our minds and think, oh, that that might be kind of fun? To engage in sexual immorality, whether with a prostitute or with someone in a different category of sinful sexual relationship That is to do violence to Jesus Christ. You are taking away a body part of the Lord Jesus. And for the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, to think that we would be willing to do violence to his body, that should cause us to recoil from such a thought. We ought never to want to do that. Verse 16, Paul asks, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Paul there in verse 16, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The two shall become one flesh. He quotes from that passage because that passage tells us what happens when two people come together in a sexual way. They become one. One flesh. That word for joins, when Paul speaks of one who joins himself to a prostitute, that carries the literal sense of gluing two substances together. There is no such thing as a sexual interaction that has no strings attached. When you come together with someone in a sexual way you are welding yourself together with that person you are sharing a life with that person in that moment and when you leave that person physically there remains all kinds of strings attached and those strings don't disappear when you leave the bed of immorality this is a very serious matter And it's so serious because of what Paul says in verse 17. But the one who joins, same word as what is in verse 16, glues together. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. When we repent of our sins and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are joined to him. Obviously not in a sexual way, but in a deeper way that sex is but a picture of when we come to Christ he sends his holy spirit to dwell inside of us he sustains us and he grants eternal life to us by allowing us to become partakers of his divine life is that not what peter says in his second, epi- second epistle second peter verse 1 or chapter 1 verse 4 He says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. When we become united to Christ, he sustains our life by his life. So when you take your body and you join it to someone else in a sexually immoral way, it is as if you are trading a sharing in the life of Christ for a sharing in the life of a spiritually dead person does that sound like a good trade no we saw this happen in the life of king solomon turn with me if you would to first kings chapter 11 1 Kings chapter 11, starting in verse 1, says, "Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which." The Lord had said to the sons of Israel, "You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods." Solomon held fast to these in love. The ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, that was a copy of the Bible that people in the New Testament would have been, especially Greek speakers, would have been most familiar with that, the Septuagint. And in the Greek translation, that word for held fast is the same word for joins that we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Solomon joined himself to these forbidden women in a sexual way. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives... Turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Instead of holding fast to God, instead of joining himself to God, Solomon joined himself to forbidden relationships, And his heart was turned away from the Lord. He traded the maker of heaven and earth for the detestable idols of these other nations. Idols that encouraged their followers to sacrifice their children in the fire. That's the trade Solomon made because of his love for his forbidden wives. That brings us to our third and final truth that we see in verses 18 to 20. And it's this. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In light of all that we've seen so far, Paul begins verse 18 with this command. Flee immorality. Flee pornea. If we understand that sexual immorality is a demeaning of the gift of sex, a degrading of our body, a tearing away from our Savior, and a trading of our oneness with the life-giving Christ for a oneness with the spiritually dead. That command should make a whole lot of sense to us. Flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Solomon, though he did not take his own advice, he did happen to give great advice to his sons. Turn with me if you would to Proverbs chapter 7. Solomon here is writing to his son warning him to flee sexual immorality and to do so he gives his son a picture. He tells his son about what he saw through the window happen to a young man who did not flee sexual immorality. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 1. He says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart, she is boisterous, and rebellious, her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, "'I was due to offer peace offerings. "'Today I have paid my vows. "'Therefore, I have come out to meet you, "'to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. "'I have spread my couch with coverings, "'with colored linens of Egypt, I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. That sounds pretty good. And sexual temptation always seems pretty good. Verse 19, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. So nothing to worry about here. Verse 21, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. If the ox knows he's going to be slaughtered, he's not going to just be led along. That's why you can lean an ox to slaughter, because he doesn't realize that he's about to be slaughtered. And so with this young man, he thinks it's going to be okay, but it's not. He's as one in fetters, heading to the discipline of a fool. Verse 23, until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Flee. Run. Don't be deceived by the desire that your sinful flesh is pulling you with. Run. Back in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul goes on in that verse to say this. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. All sin is damaging. All sin is defiling. All sin brings the wages of death. But sexual sin is unique in a certain way. Paul says that the one who sins sexually sins against his own body. How so? Well, Paul seems to explain in verse 19. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Paul tells us something very profound here. The body of the believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. The God of the universe, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who created you, the God who brings the dead to life, the spirit of that God dwells inside of you if you are a believer this morning. You are his temple. Now, what is the purpose of a temple? A temple is where the worship of God takes place, where you commune with God, where he comes and meets with his people. Jesus spoke of our bodies as temples in John chapter 14 in his last bit of teaching before he was going to go to the cross. He spoke there in that chapter about how all three persons of the Trinity make their home with the individual believer through the person of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus says this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And then verse 23, Jesus goes on, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Meditate on that truth. If you're a believer, your body is a temple of God. God has made his abode with you. Your body is intended by God to be a place where worship and communion with God takes place. Now we saw with King Solomon how sexual immorality and idolatry go hand in hand. They are really inseparable. We saw how His indulging in sexual immorality led him to idolatry. When a Christian, this is how it works. This is how uh, sinning sexually is sinning against your own body. When a Christian commits sexual immorality, he sins against his body. He sins against the temple of God. He turns his body, the temple, into a place of idol worship. That is what happens when you join yourself to a prostitute, when you join yourself with someone, anyone, constituting a relationship that is deemed sinful by God. Idol worship is taking place in the temple of your body. Turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 8. Because in Ezekiel chapter 8, we see what happens when God's temple is desecrated. And again, this is filling out our understanding of how sinning sexually is a sinning against your body. Ezekiel chapter 8. In this passage, God is giving Ezekiel a tour of the temple to show him how Israel is desecrating his temple. Look at verse 5 of Ezekiel chapter 8. Then he, God, said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, so that I would be far from my sanctuary? you see the end result of desecrating the temple of God? When you commit sexual immorality, you are abominating the temple of God and you are estranging yourself from God. It is not possible to commune with God and to commune with evil at the same time. At the, back in 1 Corinthians 6, at the end of verse 19, Paul asks, Don't you know that you are not your own In verse 20, he says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Our bodies are not our own. They have been purchased by God off of the slave market of sin, and the purchase price was the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our bodies are not temples, where we worship ourselves and we seek to pleasure ourselves. That's what they used to be, but we were purchased off the slave market of sin and now we have a new master and now our temples are meant to worship him, to serve him, to bring him pleasure, not ourselves. We exist for his pleasure, his glory, not our own. We have a new master now, Jesus. if you have given your body over to sexual immorality or are contemplating doing so, you need to understand the precarious position that you are placing yourself in because God does not take kindly to the desecration of his temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You need to understand that, but you also need to understand this, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for you is so valuable that it is infinitely more than enough to cleanse you, to make you white as snow, and to restore your body to be the temple the place of worship that God intends for it to be Jesus purchased your pardon I read or we read uh, our call to worship first John chapter 1 I just want to read that for us again because here is the promise no matter what sins whether it's sexual or not that you have fallen into we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so if we turn from our sins and we come to him, his sacrifice washes us clean, makes us white as snow, and provides for us to get back on the path of following him. 1 John 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, including sexual immorality. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin to God. Turn from that sin. Ask God to forgive you on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross, and he will cleanse you. He will make you white as snow. And as Jesus promised in John 14, he will take up his abode with you. Let's pray.